Aloha! This is Dr. Tiki, and I'm listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. I'm glad to hear that you are too. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. From the Project Blue Book Wholesale Car Shop on Sublevel 19, deep in Area 51, hello and welcome to TalkCast 317, this week's edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Enjoying my new Roy Rogers and Trigger tattoo, I'm the Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight, who knows, some of us are here, some of us aren't, some of us may show up later, who's here now? Joining the TalkCast tonight, the Acton TARDIS resurfacing plant, our technical anarchist button pusher to the stars is this week's sonic screwdriver driver driver Kriana. I'm not here. Don't refer to me again. <laughs> From the stacks of her personal space in the Dank Dungeons industrial cart catalog, unfolding and desalinization plant, befriending robots all along the East Coast and unfriending inhuman Facebook stalkers, it's Zombrarian. I'm watching a Bill Nye video. I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> Good Lord. Who knows who else might show up? We have no idea. Our guest tonight is the CEO, creator, head writer, artist, anchor, and does everything else for Mitchell Comics, Mike Mitchell. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to be aboard. You probably know Michael best from Zombie Sub 920, which is a wonderful little independent project he's had going now for, what, two years has it been? Yeah, going on our third year. Amazing. Uh, yeah, November will be our third year. And I know we've never talked about this before, and I don't know why we never did. But how did you get started doing comics? What were you doing beforehand, and what kind of got your interest in it, and how did you know you could do it, and that kind of stuff? Don't, I actually don't remember a time when I was not drawing comics, and I know that sounds kind of trite, but I, I really don't. It was some of my earliest memories were drawing uh, superheroes with crayons, and I remember uh, being in kindergarten and drawing a... Uh, a little sketch of Superman and looking up and noticing that the teacher and most of the classroom was hovering over me. So I just always remember doing that. I've always done it and uh, always wanted to do it professionally and found myself in high school uh, not knowing what to do with it. There was no school to teach you how to draw comic books. I went to art school for a few years, dropped out, um, got a real job, and then at age 40 decided I was going to go the small press route, and I've never looked back. Now, the small press route is where independent comics get born, where uh, writers and artists just getting their start or who don't want to go the Marvel, Boom, DC, uh, uh, Dark Horse route. And uh, did you did you consider trying to break in that way as well? Um, not really. I was, you know, a novice. I was a kind of a kitchen table um, kind of comic book, doing it for my own amusement type of thing. And uh, my teenage boys were uh, in their late teens and collecting comics, and which was great for me because I, you know, it was an excuse for me to. Um, collect some of the books that I had when I was younger and renewed my interest in it. And uh, we went to a comic book show that was a small press 
comic book show. And I saw other people there doing these wonderful books. And I thought, you know, I could do that. I, I could easily do that. And uh, so started doing that and came up with uh, my first comic uh, around 2006, 2007, uh, which is around the same time I, I got divorced. And I was... Uh, doing that and going up and down the East Coast, peddling that and having some moderate success, but I wasn't really terribly happy with it. And I met this wonderful woman and uh, she bought my comic and proceeded to uh, email me and, and critique it and tell me what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. And I was like, wow, this is a beautiful, intelligent woman and she's into comics. And so I married her. Those are fairly <laughs> that's, that's rare. That's my wife, Michelle, <laughs> right? Right? Absolutely. So I was so, like, I, I, I got to marry her. It just doesn't come along, you know? <laughs> so when did Zombie Sub 920 come into, uh, come into play for you? When did you decide that was going to be the series for you? Well, I have to credit my wife for that as well. Before we were married, we, um, like I said, I was doing the comic book circuit with a comic called Zombie Boy, which I was not terribly happy with, and uh, we de she decided to take me on a date. She knows I love military hardware and stuff, and and she said, uh, have you ever been to the Albacore submarine down in Portsmouth? And I said, no, I had not. And we were at a, we were just coming off a comic book show in Portland, Maine. So we took a tour of it, and it was fascinating, and it's very interactive. If you haven't gone, I suggest you go and check it out. You can touch all the buttons and everything, and we got to the crew quarters, and she saw how everyone was stacked up like cordwood. She said, Michael, it's so creepy. Dad. Can you imagine if there were zombies down here? <laughs> I just, a light bulb went off in my head. Zombies on a submarine. How great is that? I, was, I, I knew that was the next comic I had to do. So Small Press has actually been very good to you, and you've, you've kind of worked as the kind of information officer for... Mitchell Comics, giving them kind of the credo of family comics. Uh, I've noticed that in, in a lot of your uh, your press releases and stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. Tell tell me about why that's important to you. Well, it's really really been great. Um, as I said, Michelle and I got married, and we we both had adult children, so. It's a blended family, and we we were really blessed that our children all get along great. They get along as if they were raised together their whole lives, which is very unique and funny, and they do a lot of things independently of us. And the other thing they have in common is they're all very supportive of our comic business and all involved in one way or the other. Our uh, oldest son, John, uh, creates music, and he created a music video using my art, um, our daughter Emily is beautiful and she dresses up like a zombie sailor girl and oh God. All, the, all the geek boys all cranked up at the cons and, and directs them to our table. Um, my youngest son, Brandon is a graphic designer and, uh, he has done t-shirts and stickers for us. And my oldest son, Kyle is a web designer and he's done uh, some stuff for us in the past with uh, you know, web presence. So it's just been great, all the support we've had from our children. So it's, it really is a family cottage industry is what you're telling me. It is, absolutely. I draw every issue uh, by hand, uh, working after my real job is done for the day and sometimes before I start it. I do most of my work on our living room couch or at our kitchen table. I do have a studio, but I'm rarely in it. It's more like a uh, collection point for all the <laughs> all the other uh, materials and stuff involved in putting together a comic every three months. So, so on top of having this uh, series working for you, you do a couple of you've done at least two that I'm aware of. Uh, one shots. That's right. And and the one shots are tied to uh, an event or a uh, 
I don't know how else to describe it. The first one I was aware of was the... Uh, now, I've been to Exeter a couple of years for their uh, UFO festival. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, on, the one, on the one hand, you have dogs walking around on leashes with tinfoil hats. On the other hand, you've got Stanton Friedman giving a one-hour lecture. Right. So, I mean, right. it, it runs the gamut of of silliness to people talking about moon colonies and it, it, it's a very odd thing and it's all based around I guess the uh, Betty and Barney Hill uh, UFO incident uh, incident at Exeter the book and the series of other reported sightings that have occurred in that area over the past 50 years so you're first one shot that I was aware of was the UFOs over Exeter. Yeah, so, that was our first. So talk a little bit about that. Well, in, a, in addition to um, Michelle and I having comic books and pop culture in common, we, are, we also both have had a uh, parenthetical interest in UFOs. You know, we're not... Um, Neither one of us have ever seen or had an ex a UFO experience, but we're very open-minded and we find the whole thing very fascinating. And so, and we've we've done a lot of reading about it. And uh, of course, where our interest stems mostly from UFOs as represented in pop culture, comic books, B movies, that kind of thing. So we we've always had a fascination with that. And the Exeter Festival was on our radar early on. Of course, I have a small collection of UFO books. So I was very familiar with the incident. And um, we wanted to go like two or three years in a row, and something always prevented it. And last year we found, as it loomed closer, that we were able to go. So we marked it on our calendar and made a point of going. And coincidentally, I finished up the chores on issue number uh, seven of Zombie Sub early that year, uh, last year, and found myself with some time on my hands, and I said, you know what, I'm going to create a comic book about the whole incident at Exeter, um, all the sightings there, and now, just sort of quantify and clarify it for people. I was going to say, for people like me, who don't have... I swear I listen when we do the podcast. <laughs> Which one is Exeter again? The Exeter, New Hampshire was the Betty and Barney Hill. Okay. No, uh, no, I'm, I'm going to call you on that one. It actually was not. And that's one of the reasons we did the comic book was to clarify. Betty and Barney Hill did live in Exeter, but their sighting was at Fraconia Notch. And it was some uh, four years prior to the sightings in Exeter. The sightings in Exeter revolved uh, mainly around a young man, Norman Muscarello, who had the first sighting. It was also, he took them to an area where he saw it, and it was witnessed by two police officers, both of whom were former servicemen, and Pease Air Force Base also got involved. There was a number of sightings that took place over a uh, four-week period, and it was written up in a New York Times bestseller book by uh, a noted author of the time, John Fuller. So, John Fuller is also the person who did the interviews, some of the interviews with Betty and Barney Hill as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why the confusion comes in. He also wrote a book about them. So, yeah, sometimes people, and because the Hills lived in Exeter for a period of time, and it was only a four-year difference between the two, a lot of times people lumped them together, so... You get a well, pass, and for so. people <laughs> outside New England, Franconia Notch and Exeter are not that far apart. Right, right. And they were yeah, actually they, they, driving from Franconia Notch to Portsmouth at the time. Right, that's, that's correct. And I do mention the hills in the book, but um, that, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book, to, to uh, go into, to just sort of differentiate the Exeter things a little bit, because it does tend to get lumped in. So is there a different way to, that you approach the storytelling with, and 
since I am a UFO skeptic, I hate to say nonfiction, but I mean, you are, you know, you are representing nonfiction events. Is there a different way you go about it? Sure. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Because Zombie Sub uh, 920 takes place historically, too, if I remember correctly. Please tell me I'm remembering correctly. Well, it's historical only in the fact that um, they're serving on board the last submarine on Earth, which is actually a a refurbished uh, World um, Cold War era atomic submarine. But okay, uh, I was, I was it, like, doesn't it take place in the Cold War? But no, yeah. I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, is, is Zombie Sub takes place mostly in uh, my wife and I's imagination. And the thing with um, the Exeter thing, even though. I guess you could say it's nonfiction. It's, I mean, even though you could say it's fiction, it's really nonfiction because um, in the book, we don't make any claims about what was seen or where it came from. We only report uh, what was taking place and what the actual newspaper reports, police reports, and Air Force reports were at the time. So in that sense, it's a completely true book. It draws no conclusions. In fact, we end the book by saying, what do you think? Oh, cool. So that's actually the last line in, in, the, in the thing. Clearly, people were seeing something. You can call them lights in the sky. You could say it was an Air Force project that Pease was trying to keep under wraps. Um, we don't know. But it was clearly something that affected thousands of people as far away from as Boston to Manchester in that corridor with most of the sightings taking place in Exeter. And the interesting thing is everyone reported the same type of vehicle, the same experience. Nobody made contact. But in a lot of the cases, um, it was people from different areas of the state all reporting in at the same time. So it is a very fascinating case from that perspective. And did you try to draw people, like, did you take photographs that, from the time and try to draw people as they looked, or did you take a little bit more literal artist, literally artistic license? I did, I did a fair amount of research on uh, from what few photos uh, existed on the net of the principal players, like Officer Bertram and Norman Muscarello. An interesting story, and I just, I just told this at... Um, a UFO conference we went to last weekend in Stratham. The interesting thing was there was a dispatcher named Scratch Tolan. There was only one surviving photograph of him I've been able to find, and he was standing in a lineup of other police officers, very stiff. So I didn't have much to work with. So as I was drawing the splash panel for UFOs over Exeter, I was trying to put myself in the dispatcher's office that evening when, the, when Norman Muscarella burst in saying we were being invaded by flying saucers and, and just hysterical. He was, he was really shaken by his experience. So I drew Scratch Tolan sitting there at the desk and I had him with his hand on the phone and I said, okay, that looks right. And I drew some papers behind him and I said, that looks right. And just trying to imagine the scene in my mind. And for some reason, I decided to draw a lit pipe in the ashtray on his desk. Interesting thing is, I had no idea that he smoked a pipe. Went to the Exeter UFO Festival, and we were selling the book. Someone actually came up to me who knew Scratch Tall and said, it looks just like him. He did a great job. I was happy with that. But then he said, and it's so cool you put a pipe there. His pipe, he always smoked a pipe, and it was always on the right-hand side of his desk. That, that just blew me away. Oh, I don't know how so that cool. happened, but... Because, <laughs> like, in the 60s, you assume that people, like, smoked at their desk all the time. Yeah. But yeah, pipes, he looked like, a, he looked like Uncle Charlie that. from My Three Sons, so I guess that <laughs> could have been some influence there. So how did that first one-shot work for you? Uh, how... It, Clearly, it sounds like it was very well received at the festival. Yeah, that was our biggest selling book last year, no doubt. We sold uh, about a thousand copies, and it's still selling fairly steadily uh, around the state in different bookstores. And uh, like I said, we went to a UFO conference, and it always sells well there. And um, looking forward to, to selling again this year at Exeter UFO Festival. 
Now, people in New Hampshire and New England are aware of the McAuliffe Shepherd Discovery Center in Concord, New Hampshire, as a museum slash planetarium slash great way to spend an afternoon. And you were involved with their Aerospace Fest 2016 with your second one shot, which was the Flight of Freedom 7 with Alan Shepard. Yep. How did that uh, how did that come together for you? Well, you know, New Hampshire is just a, an amazing place. We we love it here. We love the seacoast, and, and we love the mountains, and it's just got everything. And people here are very open-minded and, and interested in a lot of different things. And New Hampshire has a lot of pioneers and heroes. So, you know, after the whole Exeter thing and how well that was received, we started uh, talking my wife and I about uh, what else we could do that was had a New Hampshire theme to it, that would have legs to it, that w a lot of people would find interesting. But we also wanted to do something that was uplifting and something that would, um, you know, interest children. And we were actually driving back from Exeter up 93 and north, because we live in the Lakes region, and... Um, we drove past the McAuliffe Shepherd and saw that beautiful redstone rocket just rising right. into the sky, which is a which is a full scale replica of the actual Mercury Redstone three that that uh, Shepherd rode into space. And uh, <laughs> Michelle just pointed out with her finger, "There it is, <laughs> there it is," because Alan Shepherd was raised in East Derry, so he truly is a New Hampshire icon. And it's a great story, America, America's first manned space mission. Uh, how more heroic and, and interesting can you get than that? So you began to put together uh, a comic and form an affiliation with McAuliffe Shepherd Discovery Center and their Aerospace Fest, which was, I guess, two weeks ago. Last week, actually, last weekend, the new comic. No, it was two, week, two weeks two ago, weeks, yeah. Yeah, the uh, comic debuted there. Uh, yeah. how, how did you get that? How did you form that relationship with them? Well, like I said, the rocket outside the museum kind of inspired it to the comic in the first place. And um, we we knew when we saw it we, and talked about it, we knew that was the comic we had to do. Um, I guess getting in the McAuliffe Shepherd and having them carry it in our in their bookstore was was like a, a pipe dream of ours and, you know, kind of wishing on a star. And we were very fortunate that um, as soon as we broached uh, the topic to them, I, I think I did a few pages and I had a uh, front and back cover. <clears throat> we sent them scans and a quick breakdown of the story. Uh, they were interested right from the get-go. Um, there was a, like a, a vetting process because it's an educational institution. They wanted to make right. sure everything was... Right. 100% historically correct, and and uh, so they had final approval of the script and art, and that was interesting, too, because I never had gone through that pro process, but it went very smoothly, and they couldn't have been nicer to us, and uh, so we, uh, we were very fortunate there, and uh, it's just been wonderful. It was a wonderful day. They uh, sold a lot of comics in their gift store, and we were there to sign them. Uh, for them and for the customers there, so it was just wonderful. So what kind of research did you do for this one, knowing that, you know, <clears throat> as non-fiction-y as the UFO one was, this one needed to really stickler for accuracy. Was that even a sentence? Yeah, it was close enough. You know, what, what, was, the, what was the process in putting this one together and figuring out visually what it was you had to do? Well, as a, as a, I was fortunate there, too, in that as a young man, I wanted to be an astronaut, like so many of, of my generation, because that was when uh, they were rocketing into space every, you know, couple of months. And, and they were our real true blue heroes. And so I read a lot as a young man about the actual space program and uh, collected autographed photos of astronauts. Some kids had baseball cards. I had astronaut photos that I collected. So I was pretty familiar with, with his flight already. Um, and I, I did have a number of books in my collection. I have a pretty big library of, 
comics and space books and UFO books. And uh, so I had a number of books I could refer to where I was able to pull out a lot of um, facts that you don't, you know, little interesting tidbits that you don't find on the Internet. But I, I did use the Internet as well as a resource to just uh, triangulate a bunch of different things. And uh, one interesting thing about Shepard's flight, and I go into it in the book, is the the rocket that he went up on, the Redstone, was blowing up on the launch pad every couple of months. It, it was mm-hmm. not, they had yes, not have all the, all the bugs worked out of it when he took his flight. So he's sitting on top of this firecracker, and he was, he was uh, intended to go up around 7.15, I think, 7.30, and there were a number of holes, one because of weather, another because of computer problems. So he's sitting in this tiny, tiny space capsule on his back, pointing up at the sky for four and a half hours. So as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's the perfect vehicle for me to use artistically as a flashback sequence where I can retell all the moments in his life that led up to that moment. So I start off with him getting in the capsule and then quickly go into the hold. And then it's sort of like a dream sequence where we, we take the uh, audience right through his upbringing and East dairy and his training in the Navy and all the way back to that moment. And then it's liftoff time and we go right into that. So, you know, the, the memory is, a, is a really odd thing. And, my, because we're kind of the same age, and I remember as well being a kid sitting up, getting up really early in the morning, watching the black and white TV, and, oh, yeah. and, and, and doing the whole thing. Was there anything in doing the research now that contradicted what how we've sugarcoated the memory of what that was like? Well, sure, and and <laughs> um, you know. If you if you look into it now, I think there was recently um, with HBO or somebody did a did a series called Astronauts' Wives, and which was a, a terrific series. But the difference today's perspective versus back then is now we know that all these great heroes were flawed individuals, and, and they were just human beings, like like any of us. And they had flaws, and they were not superhuman. But back then, Domia, as you say, they were gods walking amongst us. I mean, they, they were, these were, and, and, and no matter the fact that they were human beings with flaws, doesn't take away for how brave they were to get in a rocket filled with tons of explosives and, and push that button and rocket themselves a quarter million miles to the moon. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. It it was a heady time for uh, for us as human beings for uh, scientific achievement and, and the bravery of, of the seven Mercury astronauts to just kind of go yeah I'm strapping yeah. my butt to an explosion and I hope it works. As Al Shepard said, there was this famous line um, which he actually said was uh, they were out watching. They were invited as. The Mercury 7 astronauts were invited to watch a launch, and the thing just blew up on the pad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, that, that they were going with the, something about the lowest bidder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a bad feeling. Yeah. So, so Mike, go ahead. What's in store for you in the next uh, couple of months? I mean, you've been... Sounds like you're going to uh, UFO festivals and all kinds of things and, and conventions and stuff. What's coming up in the next couple of months for you? We are busy, busy, busy. This is our busy season uh, um, when everybody's out buying comics and tourists are coming into the state and and uh, we're just uh, trying to be here, there, and everywhere. Um, we are very excited to announce that... Um, we have actually two events going on Memorial Day weekend. One is we're going to be at Tilton Diner right here off of Exit 20 in the Lakes region. And 
the whole common man chain has been very, very good to us, um, allowing us to set up at their diners, which has been just a great, unique experience where we get to meet people that otherwise, you know, wouldn't be exposed to comic books and, and comic book artists. And they, people have been very friendly and very uh, loyal to us through, through doing that. So we're excited about that. And also we're going to, um, we're happy to announce we're going to take it full circle from where it all started and go back to the USS Albacore. This time um, we're going to be doing a signing for um, all of our books, which they're going to carry in their gift shop there, which is just totally amazing. The uh, executive director, Jim Craig, turns out is a comic book fan. Uh, Hard to believe, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. We're all over the place, damn it. Yeah. Learned about Zombie Sub, fell in love with it, and invited us to... uh, to sell our books in his in his store there. They've been working hard all spring to revamp the submarine and the basin that it sits in and expand their gift shop. So we're going to the grand reopening there, Memorial Day, where we are going to unveil the cover to a new comic that we're doing based on the Albacore submarine. So oh, pretty very happy nice. about that. That's going to be... We're shooting for Naval History Day in September, but we'll we'll see what happens. Well, he's putting out his own series, Zombie Sub 920. He's doing one-shots of historical and, and kind of New England importance. And it's, it's totally his family's work. And, and I think it's one of the cooler, cooler ones around. Mike Mitchell, CEO, creator, head writer, artist, inker of Mitchell Comics. Mike, thanks so much for joining us tonight. My great pleasure, Don, and thanks to you and all your staff. Hey, you know, it's so much fun. Uh, and as the new book is ready to go, drop us a line so that we can we'll uh, talk about it. Thank you so much, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Alrighty, have a great evening now. And now, I don't know if we can actually make this work or not. It's time for the news. I'll take that as a no. Or a yes, either one. My version is pretty good. I liked your version. It was fun. It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Java, nice of you to join us, man. How you doing? I am fantastic how much yes, sleep have you gotten in the past the couple next of years? question <laughs> uh i'm i'm fine i'm fine we're we're all fine here how are you <laughs> okay we're, we're just gonna leave it at that then not a problem uh news this week uh upfronts were annoying uh, basically, everybody just kind of dribbled out lists of, hi, here's what we're getting rid of. Hi, here's what we're keeping. Hi, here's some new stuff. Uh, in, in the list of stuff that got tossed to the wayside uh, were Agent Carter, Castle, and Muppets. Um, well, and you know, like, the, despite the fact that I, I like watching Castle, um, it's been limping along for a few seasons. They. It, but, you know, I, I like watching. I like Fillion a lot. Yeah, I like. I like the. I like all of the people. It's just they don't seem excited to be there. Um, the writers probably aren't there. At least they've gone through three or four different, you know, cycles of writers, and and so it's just kind of tired. It needs to end. Um, well, there were three are, reasons why why Castle actually did get canceled. Uh, number one was. Uh, Stasia could not sign for another year. So if they were going to do season nine, it was going to be without his wife and without the medical examiner, which makes it a little more difficult. Second was that they couldn't come to monetary terms and the, uh, the ratings had slipped. not significantly, but they were lower than they had been. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but they changed the time. What was it? Last season? 
the the they changed the 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 day and the time and, and it's just it's an old show i think they were on season season 8 is that, that right was season 8 yes yeah so and, and that's a good run and at the beginning of season 8 they said that they were going into a you know they they were going to be around for a couple more seasons and I now it's just left to see. I I don't know. They've got a couple episodes left. Are they canceled? End of no, this they're season done now at the end of this season. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens last night. <laughs> okay, I didn't. I didn't watch the the. I don't watch on. Uh, the only thing I watch day of is Game of Thrones. So. But oh yeah, no, I don't even want to talk about that. But that's I don't the story. <laughs> I don't feel bad about Castle. I never watched Agent Carter. That I know that the, that it has a vibrant, well, a small and vocal fan following. And each um, Carter may well be moving to Netflix, which which makes sense. It because, kind of does, yeah. Like, you know, could, Netflix can afford to lose a little bit more money than the networks can. <laughs> can I mean, they really? I, I I know that I know that Agent Carter has a has a fan following, and I know, uh, but I I'm not. I'd never I've never felt the the call. Honestly, so. I feel like Agent Carter had had more promise than it had Follow through. success. Like it had excellent cast and great characters and some pretty cool story ideas, and it just never followed through. This so last, I think if, it, if Netflix does adopt it, they did so well with Jessica Jones. They did. That there's a chance that they could turn Agent Carter around. And they actually did a good job with the second season of Daredevil, much better than the first one. Well, uh, yeah, and I'm still waiting to watch Daredevil and Jessica Jones. That's my summer, you know, binge. Oh, you're going to have fun. You're going to have fun. At least until No Man's Sky comes out. So, Well, <laughs> Jessica, I will warn you now, Jessica Jones is hard to binge. Okay. Emotionally, yeah, it gets it, it, consistently. Yeah. Okay. And it starts I, I, to feel physical good, after though. a but while. But that's good because I, I watch a lot of TV and I'm just like, meh. You know. Yeah, I thought so too, and then by the second episode, I had to turn it off and walk away. Then I sat back, and 15 minutes later, I had to turn it off and walk away again. I just kind of went, "Holy shit, am I ever going to get through this? It's really good, and I really want to, but oh my god." Well, and and no surprise to anyone that the Muppets is on that list because the Muppets, or not the Muppets, Muppets, right? Muppets. It, yeah, just Muppets. Muppets, Muppets sucked. It did. It was horrible. It was the wor- It was the absolute worst. I've and never I don't seen, understand why. I've never seen uh, Muppetry so poor. And maybe you know, maybe Muppets the from problem- space, Java. Yeah. Think back for a moment to how you felt after Muppets from space. I didn't. I don't remember that. <laughs> it's it's better for all of us that you don't. Well, I mean, the, the problem the problem that I found with Muppets was that it. I keep wanting them, all of those characters, to be back on the Muppet Show because the Muppet Show was fantastic. It was a family friendly show. It was entertaining to both adults and children. And the writing was clever and interesting. And, you know, I, I think that I just think it's so hard to kind of recapture that lightning. You know, can that, I, that kind of. Can well, I be a for just one deal of talent and they can't even play on the nostalgia factor anymore because you're like as a Muppets fanatic, um, like. You know, in the new movie, the little puppet guy Walter, who's mm-hmm. like obsessed with the Muppets, that's me. Can Only I-, I am not a puppet. Um, and like just listening to the way that the voices are wrong. Yeah. Like all of the Muppets sound like <laughs> they have colds constantly and the inflection is off. And I'm watching and I'm like, they would, ne- that character would never say that. And those characters were so deeply based on their performers' personalities. Their original performers' personalities. The original performers' yeah. personalities. Yeah, it's hard. Let me, let me explain to you. It better if they had tried to do something like new, Muppets, different. but new. Yeah. I think that would have been successful. 
here, here's here's an old person's perspective, because I was really disappointed in that whole show. And o over the weekend, uh, 60 Minutes, Morley Safer retired, and they did a retrospective right after 60 Minutes uh, of an hour of his work, uh, different spots here and there. And about halfway through the show, it's Morley sitting with the cast of The Muppet Show uh, and watching Piggy and Rolf joke with him and flirt with him. And you can see Frank Oz's face and his body right behind him. And this guy is blushing as he's being flirted with a, a felt pig. And it was, you know, just that whole kind of, that's it. And well, this wasn't. Yeah, it's... The problem is that we now live in a world with Avenue Q. Yep. Right? Which yep. is great. Avenue Q is great. Uh, but it changed things. And, and I think that the people at, at, at Jim Henson's company uh, were, were afraid that they couldn't do smart um, and, and, and funny at the same time. Yep. And the the crude humor that kind of came to the forefront in the '90s, um, and not with Avenue Q, but just like in general, yeah. um, the South Park Initiative, yes, was was had had enough of an influence to to the point where the people who are working on the Muppet Show now probably are more connected to that. Than they are to the to the kind of humor that came out of the those those shows, the Bumpet Show, Smothers Brothers, uh, you know, th things like that. That that laughing, yeah, laughing, like like those. Well, those and I mean, humor. the original Muppet Show did a lot of slapstick. Yes, right? they did a lot of slapstick, but it was so classical. It was classical slapstick, and you knew it was going to happen, and it wasn't. And it was clever and, without being snarky. And it wasn't at anyone's expense. And it wasn't at, it wasn't all at the same time. It right. was it wasn't, you know, this it, it's what it really comes down to I think is ju it's just bad writing. It's yeah. just bad writing. And well, and Jim Henson and Frank Oz were masters of parody. They, yeah, masters absolutely. of parody. And, and they and, that's and there are missing. modern there are modern masters, but they're busy making their own things. Right, and that's right? what's so, missing, I think, from the new Muppets more and, than anything. I, I can't imagine being a writer in that room trying to trying to live up to the legacy that those guys set. That that's got to be overwhelmingly difficult. Even if you're brilliant, even if you spent you know ten years writing for 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 uh, you know Parks and Rec. Or yeah, something. like the show, shows know. that are or played based for Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah. if they had gotten the writing team from Parks and Rec, Muppets might have been better. It would have been because that that was also probably. smart, good-natured humor. Yeah, and uh, even the American Office at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right. By season and, four, that was pretty much over too. Well, and, and that and that's kind of the problem, right? Like the, when when good writing staffs come together, um, it, they're not going to stick around for very long because of all of the things that go into creating a show and um, being recognized for a career that's successful and moving on and becoming a, the lead writer, head writer, or you producing a show, stuff like that. That just happens. Like uh, I've been watching, my wife has been watching uh, the Mindy Project recently, so I'll catch a couple episodes here and there, and that's a fantastically funny show because it's got good writers, you know, and and it doesn't, it's smart and it's it doesn't disparage, and, and I mean it, it, but I just I want that, but more than that, now that I'm old, um, I want to be able, I want to be able to sit down to a television show with my children. Yeah. And I want to enjoy it as much as they enjoy it. And that's getting harder. I, I feel like that's really hard to do. Like, and I, I can't really... see kids enjoying that, that iteration of The Muppet Show that just ended. They didn't. It never no. drew to them, even though it, you no, know, it ran at an early no, hour. It wasn't there for it. 
we, we sat down to watch it with them that first episode, and within 15 minutes, I turned it off. Because I'm sorry, I, I, and I'm a fairly open and, and uh, you know, willing to, to let my kids experience things person, but um, I don't want to explain those jokes to a six-year-old. Well, you know? and I can't see that they would have been invested in those storylines. There's not either. enough. There's not enough going on for the kid for kids that they would be. It was not. It was not a show for children. No, and that's that. The Muppet Show was just as much a show for children as it was for adults. It was and a it true was, family show. Yeah, and and that's the same thing with Star Trek, right? Star Trek: um, The Next Generation was a show that I sat down to watch with my family. Yeah. Yeah, really? Because I just watched the one where Dr. Crusher had the new boyfriend, and then it turned out that her boyfriend was actually the parasite who was living in the other guy, and then they put it in Riker, and then she and Riker got it on. And I was not allowed to watch that one. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there weren't interesting discussions that came out from the, the shows of. That we watched of the next generation, but it was a show that, ER for the most part, religiously. So <laughs> we could, we for the most part, my family could sit down and watch the next generation and a, a new episode or a rerun and know that it was going to be something that would. There were boundaries there that allowed children to be able to watch it, right? You know, like I, I wasn't going to as a, I don't know, God, fuck me. Eight-year-old, I wasn't going to like pick up on a lot of the major philosophical quandaries that were being posed to the adult audience. But I was really going to like the big ship and the and the phasers. And, and Worf was going to get thrown across the room. Yeah, it was always the fun part. And you know, at some at, at some point, Jean Luc Picard was going to lose his stuff and and get all angry. And and you know take charge and that's and so you know these are these are my male role models. Um, so you know, that's John Picard is everyone's role model. Let's everyone, be. absolutely, because he's because he's so good and he cares so much and he doesn't. Uh, I could talk about the the leading men of of you know those shows for a long time, but Will Riker is not a role model. However, no, he's not, but he is good looking. <laughs> Um, and you know, you did take some of his style with that whole beard thing you got going on. I'm just saying. Um, so, I don't we cycle, wait, I want to cycle back around for just one second to the Muppets for one more sec. I promise. All right. If you insist. And, well, Dome and I, you, you and Dome, you and I were talking before the show and sure. I was saying, you know, there were two things I really liked about the new Muppets. And it was Gloria, the little baby penguin that Miss Piggy brought back from Antarctica after the mid-season break. (laughs) And Uncle Deadly. And here's the thing. Those two characters were brand new characters. Right, Uncle Deadly was there before, but he was never a defined role. He was just yeah, a, he was he was a background was, character, and they were developing on their own. And Gloria was adorable and had all these little nonverbal reactions to things that were kind of sarcastic and snarky and cute. Yeah, yeah. And Uncle Deadly was a was a funny character. They turned him into quite an interesting character, and and I think and I where they they had gotten on the right track and we're starting to move where they needed to be and but just not quick enough and just not enough. Well, but here's the thing. He was, I think, the only character that was really moving in that right direction. And I think that those two characters prove that they can do what they did with the old Muppets, but that they need to start with new characters. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and not I, be reliant. And like the new movies, who was the absolute best part of the Muppets? The new, the second what? newest movie. It was Walter. Yeah, absolutely. Was. Being a brand new character, and well, so and I think that they need to focus on that. I think and that's his name from I How I Met Your Mother. Is the non non Muppet character? Oh gosh, he's amazing. <laughs> the, um, the thing, the thing is that I think you said this earlier. Um, which is that the characters in the Muppets are so heavily based on 
the way that the performer, the voice performer and the, and the um, physical Bridget, performers created that character. And, and because it's live performance or, you know, it's not, you can't do the kind of things that people are used to nowadays with characters, uh, you know, artificial characters like animation. You can't divorce the, the voice performance from the physical performance. You can't divorce the, uh, the character from the performer. It's just not going to work. Right. And, and, and I think that that's part of the problem. You've got these characters that are, you're trying to, to make these characters from, from your knowledge of them rather than the way that they were known by the people who created them. Right. And, yeah. and, and so when I talk to Brian do, Henson tomorrow, because we're best buddies, we meet for coffee every Thursday, I will tell him. <laughs> that, that's why I think that I'm really interested with the new Star Trek series, because well, it's a new series. and With a new cast. New cast, <clears throat> and it's... <clears throat> Uh, you know, it's definitely not going to be original Star Wars, only with Zoe Saldana and the other Chris. And so here's the thing about it: um, I, I've been pissed about CBS's move of putting it behind the paywall, and I think in the long run it's going to bite them in the ass, and I hope it does. Well, but I mean, think about it, Dom. Technically, all of Netflix original stuff is behind a paywall. Yeah, but you just don't notice because you're paying for Netflix, and I think that that's the. I think it's going to be the model of the future. But I don't know because for Netflix years we've been saying, I wish I could buy a cable bundle and just pick which which channels I got and say I want Food Network and ABC and Bravo, and I'm really telling you guys a lot about myself right now <laughs> and HGTV, um, and. And pay for just the ones you want. No, I, and, and I, I think that that's that. what's going to start happening is that all these places are going to start saying, okay, well, here's our content. It's on the web. You can stream it to your TV. You can stream it to your device. You have to pay this much. And I think it's going to develop in from you have to pay to see this show to you can pay to see this show or you can pay for a year-long subscription to everything we do. But here's, yeah, here, the, the problem here's is... My, yeah, there's tons of problems with it, and we'll get to that for a minute. But here's what I wanted to say about it. Uh, they dropped the first teaser for it today. Yeah. Uh, teaser. It's not a teaser. It's a flight through space that looks like it was... Uh, I, okay, so you watched it. Yeah, I watched it. I watched okay. it. I, I, I do not often watch teasers or trailers, but this one I watched because... Because we want to know, are they going to screw it up or not? And yeah, it's a lot of flying through space, like the opening of every Trek uh, uh, series, you know, that Lens starts off... Flare? No, not a whole lot of it. But I was waiting, and I was waiting, and about 25 seconds into it, the theme started to roll through, and I went, there you go. When the theme hit, I just kind of went, now it all comes together. Now you're smart. You don't throw everything out. You bring this part into it, and hopefully, hopefully they do it right. That's all well, I can say. The, the thing that they said at the, that was put up on the screen at the end, and, and you, we, you, know, you could probably... I am sure that there are plenty of people out there who are deconstructing the logo and the planets and the movie <laughs> and all this stuff, so trying to figure out what's going on and where it's going to be set or whatever. But they said new characters, new villains, new something, blah, blah, blah. But I, I am going to deconstruct enough to say that it looks like, and this is a problem for me, they're going to go gritty. As opposed to polished chrome and wood, yeah. As opposed to polished chrome, wood, and and nice beige leather, <laughs> or like, pleather, is the case maybe. You don't know. That's I, and I'm sorry. I am not. I do. I I cannot. 
I am not a an original series Star Trek nerd. I'm not. I can't. I tried. I tr- I've tried. I just I and I get Kirk. Sorry. I got it. I got like I can appreciate it. You know, like I appreciate um, the, the I appreciate uh, I don't know a, something old like Dome. I I can appreciate Dome, but <laughs> I'm not. That's all I'm saying is <laughs> I'm not. I I I I mean, like that's not my bag. I'm not. I I don't know. I, it's just I I want I want I want the Navy in space. That's what I want. I want the principled Navy in space. What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, I don't want the original series. I want like Voyager Next Generation. Yeah, I yeah, want absolutely. Like, Although, I want, I want both the drama to be both. Oh my God, we're about to get taken over by a giant gelatinous blob. And, oh my god, I really want to help my friend Warp get his honor back. I watched this episode today, can you tell? <laughs> He's like, I want to help Warp get his honor back, but I can't. I want, I want a show that highlights not only how pretty the people on screen are, but also how good humanity has the potential to be. Yes. Because I think that that is, and I think that this is true for the original series as well, I think that that's Star Trek's strength, which is to put us into a situation, put humanity into a situation where we have to demonstrate our capacity for intelligence and morality. Yep. And, and, and try to parse situations where that morality is not easy because that's when the next generation that's when Voyager in and occasionally Deep Space Nine that's when those shows and and the original series too that's when those television series and movies really made a difference and and, and real and extended the the um, pursuit of what is humanity and what can humanity be? Couldn't agree more. That's the prime directive. It's what makes Trek Trek and makes Trek special. It, and- it makes Trek something other than Star Wars and Firefly and yep. Battlestar Galactica. It's different. That's what Trek. That's what Gene Roddenberry did. That was exactly. The it was, that was the bottled lightning. It was the the question of what is humanity and how are we going to present ourselves in the in the wider universe so I, I i just hope that they remain true to that because enterprise did not and the new star trek movies uh, reboots and enterprise again you know had, had the muppet issue bad writing yeah I, and that's the problem that i have with the new star trek movies too is that it's Very not much so oh, there's, oh there's no there's no principle like uh it, what i see is the expression that what humanity is is what we can get away with, and I don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that that's Star Trek. Never, it never should be. That you know, not if that's uh, that's when, something else. And yeah. I don't, I don't. That's why I don't identify with it. That's why I don't. It doesn't even come into my mind. It's the same reason why Star Wars, the orig- the the prequels, doesn't register for me as Star Wars. Well, and be- you know what happened with both of them. They sacrifice story for effect. Lens flare. Yep. <laughs> Boy, did they. You know, another hour has come and gone, and God, I like talking to you guys. It's it's fun, and we only we had so many other things to talk about, and we never got to them. Which is that's kind enough. Of, I think you're right. Coming up the next couple of weeks. May 21st, I'm sorry, May 28th, Jack comes on to discuss her new book, The Demonic Eyes and Bloody Nightmares, and what it's like to start writing your first book when you're very, very young. After that, on June 4th, Gary Summers comes on to talk about Northeast Comic Con and and the incredible stuff that's going to happen there. 
And his Hawaiian shirt. And his wonderful Hawaiian shirt. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic-Con, GraniteCon, Northeast Comic-Con, BooksandBlues.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit Comic Art House for all the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. When you come by, say hi to Bob. Tell him to send you. Our intro music production was provided by Rob Watts. Find more of his creations at robwattsonline.com. Our outro music is provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Check out their new grooves on lawrencemademecry.com. Buy their new EP. It's freaking amazing. I want to thank uh, our guest tonight for coming by, Mike Mitchell's Zombie Sub at 920, and his new line of one-shots are really, really, really nice. And it's nice to see a whole family working together. I want to thank Cass for joining us tonight from the Act in Action Time Warp, Sweetheart of the Soundboard, Donna, and Woman of Words on Burn. Thank you so much, ladies. Ooh, I get to say something tonight. Something. Perfect. Back from the shadows into the Captain Crunch, taking care of babies wherever you can. Thank you, Java. Too cool, too cool, too cool. This is Dome saying Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. Oh, I know.